Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, and I am so happy to be with Jessica Drummond today. Jessica is a physical therapist. She's a certified clinical nutritionist and a certified health coach. She's been a physical therapist for more than 10 years now, and she's specialized her practice towards women's uh, and pelvic physical therapy. Um, and she's really turned her attention towards women's health in general. She's the founder and CEO of Integrative Pelvic Health Institute, and she's just very dedicated to uh, empowering women who struggle with uh, chronic pelvic pain. And, you know, Jessica, before we jump into um, grilling you, I just want to say, because I know that you're going to give us a lot of pearls today, I was looking in the literature a little bit around chronic pelvic pain. Um, as a clinician, I, I do work with, um, I'm a functional medicine generalist, and I do have, you know, some women in my practice with chronic pelvic pain. And it is challenging. It can be very challenging to address. But, you know, really, it's an extremely underappreciated issue. So I, in the literature just today, I was looking at um, the, 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 really the, the cost, the estimated direct medical cost for it is nearing $9 million a year, and excuse me, $900 million a year. And in one study in particular, they said that um, – in primary care, in the primary care setting, you know, almost 40% of uh, women were reporting pelvic pain. So it's such a huge and underappreciated issue. Yeah, so, absolutely. Tell me a little bit about your journey towards um, addressing pelvic pain and, you know, some of the other uh, ways that you're supporting women's health in general. You know, um, I think it's very interesting that you say that, that, you know, such a large number of women are struggling with pelvic pain. And so I've been working with women with pelvic pain professionally since, well, I graduated from physical therapy school in 1999, and I pretty quickly, you know, a year or two later, started specializing in women's health and pelvic health uh, for women uh, and also for men, although my practice has always been mostly women. I worked in a women's hospital, and now I focus entirely on women. But there are quite a few men with pelvic health, too, who I think mm -hmm. are an even more underappreciated uh, right. pelvic health concerns, pelvic pain, who are even more underappreciated. So that's important. So, you know, essentially I started working with pregnant women, with women with breast cancer recovery issues, and what I found as a physical therapist was that pelvic pain was one of those really challenging clinical issues because it can involve skeletal issues, it can involve digestive health issues, it can involve neurologic issues, uh, pudendal nerve pain, um, it can involve uh, bladder and reproductive organs, so there's a lot going on that is really housed in the pelvis. So clinically, it was very challenging. And then about, I think it was uh, like around 2008, 2009, I was personally diagnosed with adrenal fatigue a few years after I had my first daughter. Mm -hmm. And I was really sick. You know, if you've seen people with kind of that pretty significant flatliner adrenal fatigue, 
you know, your hormones are completely out of whack and so fatiguing. And it's one of those things that's very mysterious to most clinicians, especially then, because no one was really talking about it. And what I realized was that nutrition was a very key piece of my recovery personally. Uh-huh. And I thought, you know, if if nutrition can have such a significant impact on hormones, I felt as a physical therapist, and I really think physical therapists are the ones who are the most kind of knowledgeable about pelvic pain, uh, you know, urogynecologists as well, but you know, in terms of clinicians, a lot of people don't realize that physical therapists are really a good place to start. They're, they have a lot, you know, those that specialize in pelvic health have a lot of specific training, and there's a lot of issues that can be resolved just with dealing with the pelvic floor musculature. Mm-hmm. But I realized as a pelvic floor physical therapist that nutrition was a big missing piece in addressing these concerns because of those all those different systems, you know. We talked kind of briefly about fiber for constipation, but nothing about, you know, gut dysbiosis, nothing about adrenal hormones and sex hormones and some of the natural um, opportunities for balancing those, you know. And, and because this issue really impacts women throughout their lifespan, you know, I started to apply it to women who were postpartum who had more birth injuries or women who were menopausal or perimenopausal and having, you know, uh, low estrogen issues um, and bladder, you know, more and more bladder um, pain stemming from things such as uh, interstitial cystitis. Mm-hmm. In this functional medicine perspective, it's sort of like, you know, we have leaky gut. We also have leaky bladder. It's kind of an issue of an autoimmune um, condition that can okay. stem from a lot of different things. So. Anyway, the point is that I became a physical therapist and then I became a nutritionist because I felt like there was such a missing piece. And then a coach because there's such an emotional charge to this area. Got it. That's So you've just dropped so much powerful information. That's why I'm trying to jump in here um, because yes, I want to go yes, through yes. this. You just really gave – I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure other clinicians and people listening to this will um, – particularly people who are are suffering with pelvic pain or the clinicians working with them, you know, feel empowered and heartened by the fact that you've applied this functional approach and I know that you're getting wonderful outcome. So basically, you're looking at whole, you know, whole person medicine. You're really, you know, using your 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 uh skills as a physical therapist and now you're training as a nutritionist in um pelvic pain Uh, chronic pelvic pain in general, regardless of etiology. So you're seeing beneficial outcome with this uh, functional approach in general. Is that what you're saying? Yes, and I don't do much, I don't do any of the hands-on pelvic floor physical therapy anymore. I haven't done that for a few years, but I do collaborate quite a bit with my colleagues who do the hands-on pelvic floor rehab, and then I fill in the sort of functional medicine, functional nutrition uh, pieces of the puzzle. Okay, and that's what the that's what the Integrated Pelvic Health Institute is. Um, people could yes, actually access you or refer to you. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yes. So the integra- the Integrated Pelvic Health Institute is. I have a small practice of cl- of clients, patients, and also we do a lot of training of gynecologists, of pelvic floor physical therapists, of um, functional nutritionists. You know, who want to specialize in different women's health concerns. We do a lot of education. 
Oh, that's wonderful. And I know I'm diverting, and we'll get we'll circle back to the topic in a second. But are you doing this as online training or one-on-one coaching, or are you actually do you actually offer seminars, in-person seminars? How do you do? How do you do that? Both. It's primarily a nine-month online um, certification that you can do through online uh, education, um, and so we have students, uh, various kinds of women's health and wellness professionals in I think 10 or 15 countries now across the globe, so that's mm-hmm. really exciting. Um, but also, you know, sometimes I, I speak at conferences or I'll do an in-person seminar if a clinic, you know, requests for me to come and do pieces of, of that training in person. I do that from time to time as well. Okay, and you take patient referrals as well? I do, yes. Okay, great. Thanks, Jessica. Um so let's zero in on um, interstitial cystitis. I mean, we we all work with women, and actually, you know, there are certainly some men with interstitial cystitis. Although, as you know, as you pointed out, it's much less recognized. Uh, uh, and and apply your approach to it. So let's talk about some of the the causes of IC that might be overlooked in a traditional setting um, and, you know, walk us through how you would approach working with um, the interstitial cystitis patient. Yeah, so interestingly, in the literature, there are some relatively recent published case studies looking at how interstitial cystitis is kind of intertwined with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, for example, um, gluten sensitivity, and I also see in my practice other common food sensitivities, and even Lyme disease. So, you know, my perspective is such that when we're thinking about the bladder, it's more often a, a kind of a symptom, a clinical manifestation of essentially an autoimmune response or a heightened immune response to a gut dysbiosis or potentially, you know, something more like Lyme, a parasite or a bacterial infection or a, you know, a food sensitivity. And there's some interesting studies kind of detailing what's called the IC diet. And that takes away foods that on survey data, you know, people that have IC report as being irritating to them. And there are some common ones, you know, things that are more acidic, um, you know, sometimes nightshade vegetables or, you know, certain acidic foods, um, diet sodas, you know, things like that that, you know, in functional nutrition we would get rid of anyway, Um, you know, alcohol. And so what I do is sort of take that general idea a bit further and try to figure out why in any individual case something is irritating a person's bladder so much. So usually it's a couple of different things. So we look at the digestion, you know, do food sensitivity elimination kinds of diets. They can be tested for SIBO. Um, They can be tested for other, you know, doing something like stool testing. I refer to a lot of functional medicine physicians for Mm -hmm. things like stool testing to see if we can improve the... um, gut health, which is, of course, kind of the foundation of improving immune system health, and then um, also collaborating with pelvic floor physical therapists because if you've had that bladder pain for some time, you know, there can be some muscle spasm, some tightness, 
in the pelvic floor as a response to that pain. So if you can imagine if you had chronic pain in your shoulder, the muscles in your neck and in your upper back and in your arm would be kind of tight just from guarding against that pain for so long. So pelvic floor muscle rehab is important. Um, and then additionally, you want to kind of come at it with a coaching angle because again, the research on pain is now kind of pulling together into what we call the biopsychosocial model of pain. So pain is more of a signal, a general signal that something's awry or something was awry at some point and less so much indicative of acute tissue damage, you know, especially when pain becomes chronic and something like these bladder pain issues, you know, which can sometimes stem from things like chronic UTIs or chronic um, bacterial infections, or sometimes it seems like that and they're treated over and over for, with antibiotics for bacterial vaginosis or, you know, antifungals, but they're underlying, they couldn't really ever find an infection, you know, do you see mm -hmm. that? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so um, the, the brain's interpretation of pain becomes sort of heightened. Uh, and so a lot of my clients with any kind of pelvic pain, but certainly bladder issues, it's all tied in with how often they have to go to the bathroom. And there's a lot of fear about, is there going to be a bathroom around when I need it? And there's a lot of frequency and it's waking these poor women up at night, you know, multiple, multiple times. So kind of getting to the the sort of mindfulness training to help um, down-regulate a little bit that heightened pain response um, because it's like, okay, now we understand there's something going on in the bladder. We're going to try to get to the physical root cause. We're going to calm down the muscles and nerves around it, but also we're going to try to quiet the brain from responding so, um, so much to, you know, let it quiet down. And that helps with the frequency. That helps with the intensity of the pain, and so it's a, it's a multi kind of mind body approach. That's very powerful, and it's really truly a functional or a systems approach that I hear you're talking about. So, um, in an IC patient or somebody with even chronic bladder infections or bladder infections where there's no organism identified, you're doing a handful of things here. First of all, you do recognize an immune system imbalance, be it dysbiosis, be it small, you know, lower dysbiosis or SIBO, be it, um, you know, and then damage to the mucosa, ushering in food sensitivities, et cetera. So you're focusing on the gut. There may be a wider investigation for some kind of stealth infection. You mentioned Lyme. Um, and then you also talked about bringing in the physical therapy component. So there's going to be, um, you know, various imbalances that occur just given the duration of the pelvic issues. So PT is essential. And then you brought in um, mind-body. It's just I really appreciate that, Jessica. And and I I wanted to ask you, you know, again, from a functional approach, you must be thinking about nutrient status in these individuals with chronic pelvic pain. And what are some of the major nutrients that jump out at you that you seem to uh, find deficient or insufficient in this population? Yeah, well, certainly if, you know, they have an issue of, you know, gut dysbiosis for a period of time, you know, either chronic antibiotics or just or any of these things, it's difficult for nutrient absorption. Mm -hmm. So yep. certainly um, the B vitamins um, 
you know, folate, B12, B6. Um, also, magnesium, which mm -hmm. when the magnesium is low, sometimes that pelvic floor tightness can be worse. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all the antioxidants, because you can have an issue of essentially, you know, too much oxidative stress just from the immune system being so overactive for some time. You know, a lot of times I don't, you know, as you said, women come to general health practices, 40% of them with pelvic pain, but for many of them, they don't really find the right clinician or the right approach for, you know, up to 7 to 15 years. So they can oh, that's have, amazing. you know, antioxidant depletion, they can have certainly micromineral depletion, they can have um, B vitamins for sure. So, uh, it, it can be quite extensive, the nutrient deficiencies. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly over that period of time, it makes me think of, you know, the length of time it takes somebody to be diagnosed with celiac. Um, mm -hmm. you, I just, you know, circling back to the immune component, vaginal dysbiosis, it's an issue in these women. And how do you address it directly? Um, or do you address it through manipulating the gut microbiome? Yeah, I tend to start with the gut microbiome. So, you know, from a very just practical approach, a lot of gut healing, so taking off any food sensitivities, adding things like bone broth, adding probiotic foods. You know, probiotic supplements are so tricky because it's so hard to know in any individual case which specific, you know, supplement is optimal. There's so much research sort of still to be done there, that in most cases I start with probiotic foods, mm -hmm. um, not necessarily dairy foods. You know, it might be more like coconut yogurts or sauerkrauts are great, um, kimchi. But there are, you know, I do use probiotic supplements as well, and it's a, just more of a trial and error kind of approach, really. Yep, absolutely. That's, that's what I find in my practice um, as well. So let's talk about you know, another issue moving away from interstitial cystitis to painful sex, again, just huge, um, also I think underappreciated, but perhaps a little bit more recognized. Um, can you talk about how you would specifically approach that issue in women? Yeah, I think painful sex, well, first of all, there are certain times in the lifespan where it's more common. So either women who have never had a sexual experience and then they get married, you know, they're maybe in a more traditional population, they might have vaginismus, uh, and there can be physical issues for that. Just the pelvic floor muscles can be very tight, and that's quite amenable with a really skilled pelvic floor physical therapist, someone who also does maybe some energy work to just do a lot of relaxation, a lot of down training. Mm -hmm. um, and then postpartum is a common time. And also coaching is good in that, uh, in vaginismus because, you know, certainly, um, unfortunately, tr sexual trauma, sexual abuse is very common, um, you know, just you know, difficult sexual beliefs about sexuality really need to be addressed um, for women to be able to transition to having healthy sexual relationships. So I use a lot of coaching skills there, and I also collaborate with uh, psychotherapists who've got more experience with, um, with sexual assault. I mean, you know, the numbers are huge. You know, one in 
I think four or five women have experienced some kind of sexual abuse or assault. And so it's a very common issue. And then also physically, um, postpartum, you know, certainly labor and delivery is not always kind to the pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we address um, healing the soft tissue, uh, scar mobilization, you know, a lot of times a woman will have an episiotomy or something of that nature or a tear and it gets stitched up and they go to their six-week appointment and they're like, okay, everything's healed and you're fine, you know, go home and have sex. And if it's not comfortable, the only response they get is relax, have a glass of wine, you know, and there's so much more that can be done. Scar mobilization, just education about the fact that, okay, while you're breastfeeding, your estrogen levels are going to be so much lower and so it's normal to have a lot of vaginal dryness, and you might want to consider different lubricants, different positions. You know, you're tired, you've got a new baby, you've got to really adjust those expectations. Again, that's where coaching skills come in quite handy. Um, and perimenopause, you've got the same thing. You've got this natural change where estrogen levels are changing, and many women in our society also are, are estrogen dominant because there's so many so much exposure to estrogen toxicity mm -hmm. uh, in the water and plastics and a lot of our skin care progesterone levels can be low too so you know it's kind of a combination between really naturally balancing the hormones addressing the musculoskeletal component so that if the muscles are tight or weak or the women just don't really know how to relax them or they're just fatigued and they need a lot more foreplay, you know, they need to have, uh, when life changes so much, you know, sometimes you have to adjust that also in your sexual relations. Um, so there's a combination, again, of, of mind, body, and, and physical factors in every case. Yeah, absolutely. And I have two questions. Well, I have one comment and a sort of a half a question. I, I just wanted to circle back again to interstitial cystitis or chronic UTI patients. You're also, I'm assuming, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, seeing the same estrogen dominance in these individuals, possibly adrenal fatigue, as you mentioned initially, as well as overexposure to xenoestrogens. So would you, I mean, this hormone balance, balancing component seems to be an essential um, component, you know, uh, uh, aspect to, to a good functional approach to pelvic floor pain. Would you agree? Yeah, I think, uh, totally. I think with any, you know, cause of pelvic pain, um, because a lot of times you can't tease out just one thing. You know, women who have pelvic pain could be struggling with constipation in combination with interstitial cystitis, in combination with you know, pelvic floor, like vulvovaginal kinds of, and pelvic floor musculature, um, you know, involvement. So it's not actually very often that you can really isolate it to only one specific thing. So the hormonal component certainly comes into play. And that would be why the IC diet um, is inadequate. I mean, I would say in my experience using the IC diet, it takes um, individuals a few steps along the journey. It opens their eyes yeah. to some foods that irritate. But there's always, in, in my experience, there's always been more. You know, additional investigation is needed. We have to cast it, and, and you're agreeing. You see that as well. Uh, yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I think the IC diet is a very, you know, basic, okay, certain things are going to commonly irritate the, the bladder, but, you know, especially if it's already vulnerable. But, yeah, I mean, when you're, you're not at all dealing with gut dysbiosis, you're not at all yeah. dealing with food sensitivities, you're not dealing at all with, you know, liver support for estrogen detox. Mm-hmm. You know, even women who have low estrogen often have estrogen dominance. So right. you've got to deal with both of those things. You've got to really support the liver. You've got to support progesterone levels because they're often so low. And, you know, there are testosterone receptors in the pelvic floor muscles you know, the musculature themselves can be weakened. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's wonder. great. I, you know, you brought up testosterone. I, it, so it just, you know, flags me to ask you, are there any, what, you know, what are the uh, pelvic floor issues, um, how, or how might you address pelvic floor issues uh, differently in men? I mean, I know you're taking this full functional systems approach to them, and so there's a lot of overlap, but um, can you mention some, and I know you don't primarily work with men, but can you, can, can you talk about uh, the male pelvic floor patient? Sure. I mean, I really haven't worked with male pelvic floor patients in, gosh, probably at least six or seven years now, but I will, but I have enough experience that I think I can apply this. So, First of all, there are some differences. Uh, we do pelvic floor myofascial release um, through the rectum in men, and so you can uh, kind of ass- address those muscles. Um, men often come with things like chronic prostatitis, which, mm-hmm. again, is super general and um, is probably an issue. You know, what is causing that inflammation? You want to get to the root of it. And it's something digestive in many cases. It could be chronic, you know, chronic inflammation, uh, sort of a, a metabolic syndrome kind of thing, especially if they've got um, uh, erectile dysfunction in addition to that. So you're always trying to figure out, because in a sense, it's, it's, a, it's a, um, a symptom, a result, not a root cause. Yeah. And so getting to the root cause in men is very similar with women in terms of the immune involvement, in terms of the um, digestive involvement, in terms of bladder, you know, bladder training so that you're, you're not going too frequently, education, you know, sex hormone balance. But, um, you know, things like chronic prostatitis or the diagnosis or men who have had prostate surgery. So a lot of times post-surgically, uh, these men will come in for pelvic floor rehab and, you know, they have problems with erections, they have problems with sexual function, they also may have pain, so you can address them as a post-surgical pain patient, so dealing with all the recovery of surgery. Again, the liver comes into play there because they've been on, you know, medications and um, anesthesia and you want to be sure they're detoxing adequately. So there's a lot of similarities, and I think the differences is a lot of times our male patients will have had surgery or maybe having surgery for more of a prostate, prostate cancer situation, or there's uh, sexual function involvement that tends to be a little bit more metabolic sometimes than hormonal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and when we see testosterone you know, drop estrogen in, increase considerably in that population, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. So, you know, you touched on this when you addressed the mind-body piece, but some of these um, 
individuals with chronic pelvic pain have, you know, share some commonalities with the chronic pain picture in general, uh, and then some are unique to the pelvic pain patient. Anything that you want to add to that? I think the big difference is that it because this impacts relationships, you know, it in, mm. impacts their intimate partnerships and impacts their sex lives. It impacts the basics of being able to go to the bathroom or, or not, you know, at certain times. So there can be a lot of shame involved, different from maybe someone who has chronic headaches or chronic, more like fibromyalgia, where the, there's just general pain. There's some shame involved in not, you know, being uh, able to fulfill some of those um, intimate roles that I think it's important to be really um, compassionate and also helpful with, you know, in terms of education and collaborating with that, that patient's partner uh, as long as, you know, they're open to that and just being really sensitive to sexual function. I went to a, a really interesting lecture at the American Physical Therapy Association conference earlier this year from a colleague of mine who was a physical therapist in pelvic pain and has become a sex therapist, and she works with traditional populations in Israel. And, you know, we call in physical therapy ADLs. They're activities of daily life, so things mm -hmm. like getting dressed, being able to, you know, walk where you need to, just being able to function in a very normal way. You know, as a physical therapist, a lot of times that's the goal, getting our patients to be able to physically function in the way they need to, to live their lives. And she, her t lecture uh, title was called Sex is an ADL. And I think we don't mm -hmm. think of that sometimes, that sex is really more icing on the cake. But if you can't have it, it's, it's something that can be lost and can really impact your relationships and your daily life. So I think it's important for clinicians to be really aware of that and examine their own beliefs about sexuality when they're working with this population. Right. Yes. Yeah. I, that, that, that makes so much sense. And a certain kind of um, sensitivity in this population is essential. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, so lots of our patients, lots of our, uh, the, our female patients have been on birth control, sometimes for decades, unfortunately, um, or even HRT, you know, just hormone replacement yeah. therapy. You know, what, and, and you're, you've already brought up the hormone issue, and it's a big piece of the puzzle here, but um, how does that impact pelvic pain and other health risks in women? You know, I think one of the most important things that a lot of women don't know, you know, I feel like there's a lack of complete informed consent when women mm. go on the birth control pill. You know, they are not aware that sex hormone binding globulin can be elevated permanently, which is, which is what, you know, birth control pills do. They raise this protein that, um, that uh, makes inactive sort of your own sex hormones and replaces it with smaller amounts of sex hormones, which works very well in, in some women and leaves other women with quite a few side effects. And one of them is pain directly, pain with orgasm. So it can actually, being on the birth control pill, can be a direct cause of sexual pain. But often uh, it, there are two other key things. One is, of course, the hormone balance component. So once you come off the birth control pill, especially depending on if you've been on it for quite some time, those sex hormone binding globulin numbers can stay quite high, and it's very hard to get the sex hormones back up to normal. Uh, you have to address, you know, any adrenal fatigue because that can, of course, 
you know, through the pregnenolone steel impact uh, sex hormones, but also there's nutrient depletion. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important for women who have been on the pill and then they're trying to get pregnant because we know more and more about the intrauterine environment being sort of pre-programming for that, that infant's yeah. you know, lifelong health. And so the more we can have moms you know, or women that are trying to be, become pregnant spend a few months really diving into detoxifying but also nutrient depletion, uh, repletion, you know, building up these nutrients. And if they've been on the birth control pill, some of the most important nutrients of, ple- of pregnancy have been depleted, things like B6, B12, and folate, you know, impacting the homocysteine cycle. Um, zinc, which can disrupt the zinc-copper ratio and cause increased oxidative stress. Uh, calcium and magnesium for building baby's bones and not depleting mom's bones along the way. Um, and antioxidants like beta-carotenes and vitamin E and vitamin C. So these really essential nutrients for pregnancy can be depleted on the pill. So if I have a client who's been on the pill and would like to get pregnant, I recommend that she takes a few months and really kind of build up her stores before they start being depleted by the pregnancy, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, again, just, you know, so many pearls, Jessica. I really appreciate it. Uh, and I know um, folks listening value what you're saying. Uh, you brought up methylation, you know, kind of a buzzword. You brought up, and, and I, I think that, that we can throw considering that into the overall mix, and the obviously methyl, methylation is key to being able to appropriately detox estrogens to, you know, the safer metabolites and um, also detox, you know, myriad organo and metallotoxins and so forth. And it's also involved, obviously, in, in, in DNA and, you know, the epigenetic regulation of DNA. And I think you were alluding to that in, um, you know, preparing the, the uterine birth environment um, mm-hmm. for generations to come, really. And um, yeah. so any, anything you want to say on that, uh, if you've been giving it thought at all? No, I mean, I just think, you know, you've got to make sure that, I think, again, it comes down to education, you know, you've got to make sure that women understand that, you know, and and not without putting undue pressure on them, because I think there's enough pressure on on pregnant women, but, (laughs) you know, just, which is a little tricky, because this idea is that really the health of the intrauterine environment can impact genetic expression going forward. So if they know if they have an MTHFR SNP, you know, for example, making sure they're getting plenty of methylfolate rather than taking kind of junky prenatal vitamins full of folic acid that can just build up without, you know, converting. Um, So, yes, I think nutrient repletion and preparing that intrauterine environment also with probiotics, you know, and probiotic food, making sure the microbiome is is in good shape because we used to think that, you know, babies were not really um, colonized with their own bacteria until delivery, but we're now finding more of a microbiome in the placenta, so it can start even sooner. Yeah, it's, that's incredible. Um, I really appreciate the concept that Dr. Michael Stone brought to my attention, uh, the methylation diet. Um, and his his OBGYN wife, um, Dr. Leslie Stone. So just in, in individuals with those with either homozygosity or heterozygosity of the MTHFR or even other methyl 
you know, methyl issues. Um, or even if you identify imbalances in laboratory data, B12, you know, homocysteine, et cetera. A methylation diet, you know, and again, it's our, our green leafies, you know, nuts, seeds, et cetera. So it's really kind of the diet we're, we're all migrating towards anyway. Um, so that jumped to mind. Yeah. Do you have... Yeah, no, I think yeah, but do you have any, um, in these women, just going back to chronic birth control uh, exposure and the imbalances, it's just, again, thank you so much for bringing that to our attention. So really refractory sex hormone binding globulin. Uh, it's high all the time. How, you know, are any, any kind of, um, any pearls for how we might work with that? You know, I do think it comes to helping um, support the liver and also the kinds of foods that raise estrogen. So, you know, it's funny. We've been having a lot of conversations in my uh, student group online about pomegranate. And pomegranate is a very interesting food slash, you know, you can now get it in, like, extracts. Um, that was has been used in fertility since you know essentially they had Greek gods and Roman right. gods, and then the Christians you know took it up and there's actually a a church in Italy uh, for the Madonna of the Pomegranate where they've wow. got you know ceremonies every year even to this day uh, for fertility and it's very interesting because there's so much data now kind of linking you know improvements and everything you know. Um, even uh, menopausal symptoms for uh, taking uh, pomegranates either as food or really the studies are done in supplements. But, you know, I think that's kind of using these superfoods, which are really just super healthy foods that exist, um, as a part of the diet to nourish, give your body enough, you know, nutrients to make hormones, Um, you know, plenty of fatty acids, plenty of enough cholesterol to make enough hormones. You know, too many women are on low-fat yeah. diets for extended periods of time, and they need to be on, you know, healthy-fat diets. So, um, you know, I think it's a combination of those things, the, the support of the liver and also increasing the the raw materials available to make sex hormones. And the other thing that, that increases raw materials available to make sex hormones is increasing sort of the the juiciness of life you know if a woman is not so stressed out if she has some relaxation time if she has the ability to receive care and support and ask for and receive help you know it calms it it kind of induces the relaxation response which is the only opportunity to make sex hormones if you're chronically stressed they're they're being chronically depleted absolutely yeah that's beautifully said I am personally going to go worship the Madonna of the Pomegranate. <laughs> Thanks for awesome. introducing me to that. Oh, that's yes. great. So let's <laughs> I'm dying to see an image of the Madonna of the Pomegranate. Uh and I'm gonna look that up after we're done. So let's yeah, move we, over. We talk about that in my course. Yeah. It's that's just really, really cool. I love pomegranates too. It's just a it's a sexy fruit, no doubt. That's awesome. One of my good good friends is a art historian, and and she and I had a really great conversation about that. And so now I teach it. It's great. Uh, I love it. I love it. Uh, okay, let's talk about postpartum women, um, painful sex, 
you know, uh, pelvic floor weakness, uh, core weakness. How do you address that from this holistic perspective, the functional perspective? Yeah, so... Again, I'll be collaborating with PT and fitness colleagues to help women regain their core and pelvic floor strength postpartum, um, but also the, I think, what nutrition can really add. So, you know, we do uh, well, I guess, you know, it's not just Kegel exercises, but we're certainly strengthening the entire core and pelvic floor, strengthening the glutes, you know, strength, yes. having women reconnect to the pelvic floor. A lot of times it's not even a weakness issue, but it's, you know, yeah. When you've delivered a baby, things are overstressed, yeah. your, your kind of nerve connection has been lost, and, you know, sometimes it's not enough to just get a pamphlet that says, hey, go home and do kegels, you know, you really right. need to have someone explain to you what that means, and specifically in your body, and also really common is diastasis recti, so, you know, the abdominal muscles can essentially split and be overstretched, the fascia in between overstretched. And the environment, the, the hormonal environment of breastfeeding can make, you know, kind of support this to continue for a period of time. The ligament laxity, the, yeah. the connective tissue laxity can continue, you know, and if women are breastfeeding for two years, which is the WHO recommendation, which is great for babies, but also moms need to be kind of educated that, you know, going back to powerlifting or jumping on trampolines, you know, maybe not be the right, right thing exactly right now. Not to say you can't, but you want to kind of rebuild that core stability and give the body some patience. We have so much pressure on postpartum women for getting back in the whatever, getting back in your genes, you know. I yeah. mean, the conversations about, you know, the, the new princess uh, who just had a baby in, in, in England, right. you know, 10 hours later she was, like, standing in heels outside greeting everyone. It's, you know, that is obviously a very unique case. But the point is, in general, we have a lot of pressure on postpartum women to bounce back as quickly yes. as possible. And if they're breastfeeding, which is really important, and we want to encourage that, we need to give them, and even if they're not, because they're just tired, you know, they have an infant. One of my, I worked in a women's hospital for about eight years off and on, and we delivered their, uh, the, the, you know, gynecologist delivered there about 10,000 babies a year, which is roughly one every hour. And there were tons. And, you know, my, one of my bosses once said, we used to educate a lot of the postpartum women, and she said, look, a C-section is the only, like, major abdominal surgery where they send you home without any physical therapy and they give you an infant to take care of. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Good perspective. So, yeah, the demands yeah, are so incredibly that's kind high. Of the first thing. Right. Go ahead. No, I was, now I'm just agreeing with you. I know. And the media doesn't help. You know, look at celebrity X post-baby body. I mean, yeah, it's really right. nuts. So... Um, yeah. Thank you so for that's that. The first thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then Go I ahead. think the second thing is just nutritionally, you know, we can support that kind of healing and strengthening of the collagen with things like collagen, you know, grass-fed protein powders, with bone broth, with um, nutrients that support the health of collagen, like vitamin C and hyaluronic acid and sulfur and lutein, you know, there are a lot of nutrients that really support collagen healing. And if women postpartum are really exhausted and they're not eating well and they're just grabbing fast food and barely sleeping, 
they don't, again, kind of like in the situation of hormones, they don't have the raw materials to have their body recover right. well after pregnancy. Absolutely. Very, very good point. I was thinking uh, myself of the demand for amino acids and all the, um, you know, the associated nutrients, cofactors and coenzymes, as you've, as you've mentioned, uh, essential for the healing process. Um, well, let's talk about, as we, you know, come to the end of this extremely informative um, conversation, let's talk about the menopausal woman and some of the challenges you see in your practice. Um, how do you address them? Why don't you give me the top three challenges that you see with um, the menopausal patient, uh, individual? So, you know, I really think this starts with addressing perimenopause. A lot of my clients are in there mid-40s and are experiencing symptoms of hormonal imbalances, certainly, you know, the hot flashes, the mood swings. And I think that is the thing, you know, that anxiety, uh, depression that can come on, the, the brain fog, that's what seems to bother women the most. And, you know, absolutely, I don't blame them. Um, so there, a lot of times I look to things like adrenal fatigue and also thyroid imbalances. You know, Hashimoto's is so common. And again, you know, looking at that whole person approach of her stressors, her micronutrient deficiencies, her, um, her hormonal imbalances because of both of those things, uh, liver toxicity or, you know, overexposure to environmental chemicals. So the kind of adrenal, thyroid, sex hormone, you know, imbalances is very common. Mm -hmm. Second, I see a lot of women with um, looking to strengthen their bone health. You know, they're feeling like the, talk, the clock is ticking. And one thing that I want to bring up about this that I think some people don't, a lot of, our, a lot of clinicians think about calcium-rich food and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, women who have pelvic health concerns in this age range who are struggling with something like incontinence, aren't really willing to do a lot of, you know, impact exercise, which they really need. So, you know, sometimes if a woman is fearful of doing those things or avoiding it for some reason, you might want to look at her pelvic floor health and collaborate with a physical therapist. Um, and then weight loss goals. And again, you know, metabolic syndrome is really extremely common in this population. And so we want to get to the root of that, whatever it may be in that individual woman's case. Thank you. Yes, I think just the full functional approach that you're talking about. There's so much overlap. Um, and I think, it, you know, and, and what you've shared is inspirational. Um, functional medicine clinicians, really of any stripe, can do so much for this um, overall population of any individual struggling um, with pelvic pain or, you know, any of the issues we've, we've touched upon today. I think there's much we can do. Uh, Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jessica. And I just wanted to, um, you know, let everybody know again that Jessica, well, first of all, all of her contact information uh, is available on the site. 
And if you are a clinician and need some support in identifying a good PT that you can collaborate with, you can reach out to Jessica. Uh, if you want to refer somebody to Jessica, the information is there. And again, she's the founder and CEO of the Integrative Pelvic Health Institute. So if you are interested in that training as a clinician, uh, you can reach out to her. Thank Absolutely. you so much. Thank and you for having me. It was my pleasure. You are welcome. Okay. Take care. And uh, goodbye, everybody. Thanks for joining me. Again, I'm Dr. Kara Fitzgerald on uh, this podcast.